0: There it is. There we go. James is a book written by the half brother of Jesus, um, who was not a believer when he was when Jesus was around, but became a believer. And um, so he writes this very practical book with a number of tests for us as Christians to examine ourselves and see how we're doing. It's sort of a midterm for Christians, I like to call it. And so um, a test to see how we're doing, if we're truly saved, if we're walking with Jesus and where we need to improve, that's the whole point. The main points from last week, there was a long discussion about faith and that faith is what saves us, but true saving faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by Works which are both negative and positive. Negative meaning we are abstaining from repenting of sins that we used to have a problem with, those are the negative ones we're not using drugs or sleeping around or stealing or lying or whatever it may be. And then in the positive sense, we are doing good works, we're giving, we are, um, our whole attitude has changed horizontally to other people and, of course, vertically to God. So um we talked about controlling our speech and we'll talk about that a little bit tonight controlling the tongue um james says in in this last chapter be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to anger and that is advice for teachers primarily in the context but it's a good one for all of us two ears one mouth what does that mean we ought to be hearing and listening twice as much as we're babbling as the teacher tonight I can't do that, but anyway, normally that's how it should be. Um, he talks about not rushing into being a teacher, controlling our tongues and our speech. We talked about that. Now we're going to talk about consistency, and we're going to, in, in in our faith, and we're going to hear about two kinds of wisdom: the world's wisdom and then godly wisdom, and how different the two uh, really are. So let's pick it up in uh, James chapter three. Um, where he's been talking about um, the tongue and what have you, and not many of you should be teachers. Then there's a long discussion about examples from nature, a small bit in a large horse will control the large horse, a small rudder in a giant ship will control the ship. And the, yet the tongue is, can be destructive like a spark that causes a huge flame. He talks about. So, Pick it up in verse 7, so that I know that you're awake. Everybody here say amen. amen. Oh, that was a good one. Those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen or wave your Bible. Beautiful. Verse 7 of chapter 3 says all kinds of animals. He's still on the subject of taming the tongue. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no man no human being can tame the tongue it is a restless evil full of deadly poison so as you know if you've been to marine world we have trained all kinds of sea creatures if you've been to animal shows dogs of course and they've taught parrots and minor birds to speak I'm confident they don't know what they're saying, but they do speak, right? Um, Chimpanzees, the circus, you can train all kinds of animals, but there are, uh, the Bible is clear that a man cannot control or woman their tongue, but the Holy Spirit can, to the degree we either submit to the Holy Spirit or don't submit to the Holy Spirit, Um, Ephesians 4.29 says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Words hurt. We said last week, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That is so untrue. I bet if we took a survey, everybody here has been hurt by Nothing more than somebody's words, and they linger long after they were said. Once you say them, you can't undo on the computer and take them back. Sins of the tongue, what are they? Lying, which is bearing false witness. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Taking the name of the Lord in vain in a way that you're not bringing honor to him. Gossiping, slandering another person. We'll talk about that later tonight any kind of angry words, because once you're angry, you have even less control, and so do I, over our tongues. Um, let's see, coarse jesting, that was that verse we just read, unwholesome talk, that involves dirty jokes and that kind of thing, that, oh, it's harmless, and it's not befitting of a Christian to talk that way. Um Spreading false doctrine or being a false teacher is a very serious sin to God. Also being overly critical with friends, employees, wife, husband, family, whatever it may be. All boasting. We are to boast only in God. There's nothing we can boast about. Every gift we have has been given to us. Our salvation has been given to us. Overt flattery let's face it, someone's buttering you up, they're flattering you, and it's nice to hear the nice compliments, but you got to wonder, what does this person want from me, right? Using words to manipulate, grumbling, boy, the Jews in the wilderness, you read the Old Testament, they were just grumbling and grumbling and complaining, right? Um, So uh, the, the mouth is a very small, the tongue member of the body, but it's a restless evil, he says in verse 8. No human being can tame it. It doesn't say it can't be tamed. It says no human being can do it. A restless evil full of deadly poison. Boy, if you had a bottle of poison and were rock- walking around people, you'd be very careful with it. You don't want to spill it on anybody. You wouldn't want to get a drop in somebody's mouth or something. We all carry poison behind a cage of teeth called our tongue. We have to be very careful what we say. And so here's the inconsistency in verse nine. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. That's what we're made for. That's good, right? And with it, we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. you see how inconsistent that is? And the two may not seem to um, relate to one another or correspond, but they do. And the reason is, well, I have a lot of praise for God and I just worship God and all that great. But then if you turn around and curse another person, a human being, and that's to wish evil on them, that's not cursing as in saying bad words, although that's kind of unwholesome speech in context, he's talking about saying words that are to wish evil on someone. Um, what's the problem with doing that? Well, first of all, remember that we always say in this Bible study that our faith has to work itself out in the things we do, the way we treat God vertically with great worship and humility, and then with others horizontally, loving them unconditionally, right? And it's not loving to curse someone, obviously. So, um, by the way, one fruit of the spirit is self-control. Back in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, self control. We usually don't get our hands or feet out of self control that much, but boy, the tongue, it's the most readily available tool to sin that a person carries around with them. So um, let's see. Well, we, let me back up just for a second, if I may. The first sin in the Bible is Adam and Eve disobeying a command of God. Do you remember that? And when God shows up, the first sin after that, the first sin after the fall, is blaming God. Did you ever notice that? God shows up and says to Adam and Eve, who are hiding from him, and they never did, where are you? And he knows, of course. And God says, have you eaten the fruit I told you not to eat? I'm paraphrasing, but this is Genesis 3. I don't want to turn there because it'll take too much time. Um, And Adam says, the woman that you gave me, it's your fault. The woman that you gave me, she ate and she told me to eat and I ate. And God asks Eve, what is this you've done? And she says, Passing the buck, right? Somebody else, the serpent, right? We're always passing the buck. We cannot ever blame God for our sin. After that, in the book of Genesis, it's interesting. Remember the Tower of Babel that occurs where mankind has decided who needs God? Let's build a tower to heaven, this big skyscraper or whatever it was thing. And um, we'll just worship without God. At that time, God, if you remember, confounds the languages, tongues, they call it in the Bible, so that they can't do that, and the peoples separate according to the language. Do you remember that? Okay, I believe that this is all tongue-related. He confuses the tongues. In Acts chapter 2, there's an act of re-creation in a sense. The church is born. Yes, it's in its infancy when Jesus is on the earth with the 12 apostles, but without the Holy Spirit, the church is nothing. In Acts chapter 2, the disciples and others are together. Do you remember? And suddenly, they each receive like a tongue of fire. Do you remember that? And they're suddenly able to speak languages they don't even know, and what are they saying? Cursing people and arguing? No, they're all proclaiming in different languages at the same time the wondrous works of God. They're praising God, and people are hearing them, and he in Acts 2, Luke lists the languages. It's a big, long name, and I couldn't pronounce most of them anyway, so we'll move on, but my point is that's sort of a reversal of the confusing of languages which divided people. The gospel is meant to bring people together under the lordship of Jesus, regardless of the language. Um, Okay, so I'm still reading notes here. Sorry about that. Um, Romans 3.13, speaking of people's words and what they say, Paul writes, the poison of asps is under their lips. If you have any question about how much your words can hurt people, this Bible study is for you. There was a Jewish custom that... um, very, um, uh, Jews that were very, very pious would do whenever they said anything about the Lord, about God, they would follow that with, Blessed be He, blessed be He. God. They're so careful about what they say. This would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus's time would do this practice, and they would talk about the Lord. Blessed be he. They're so holy, and yet look at the speech and the things they do that Jesus points out. So there's an inconsistency here. The problem with cursing men and with the same mouth glorifying God is it's inconsistent. Why is that? Because man is made in the image of God. And so to curse man, there's not a disconnect between, well, I'm just talking about down here. I love you, God, but I'm cursing these people. It's incongruous. It's inconsistent, isn't it? So um, the tongue can be used for the highest calling man has which is blessing God, which is worshiping God, which is praising God, which is extolling his virtues and telling others about how great God is. That's why we're here. To turn around and curse human beings is so bad that it's a sin that we don't realize how bad it is, I believe. Let me give you some examples. Peter, right? Jesus is talking to the disciples who do men say that I am? Remember that passage? It's in Matthew, I believe. And they say, oh, some think you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Ha, ha, ha. Some think you're Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. And then in Greek, it's emphatic. He uses the word you emphatically twice. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And it's silent. And then Peter says, I say you're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Remember that? Later on. Months later, he's warming himself by a charcoal fire, and a girl, servant girl, says, hey, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And he says, no, I don't even know the guy. He ends up, the third time he denies him, with cursing, he's denying that he knows Jesus. Same mouth. You say, boy, you're being hard on Peter. He didn't have the Holy Spirit then. He never does it again after that in the book of Acts, right? Right. john the apostle john we just studied john remember before we did we started james john's the apostle of love little children love one another he says it again and again and again and again in first john and through the gospel of john he's the apostle of love do you know that in earlier they were also called the sons of thunder him and his brother james they said they wanted they told jesus There was a Samaritan village. They didn't like these half-breed unbelievers. Let us call down fire from heaven on these people. A curse. Same mouth, love, cursing. Um, You could go on to other examples, but the highest good we can do is blessing and praising and worshiping God. There's a verse in the Old Testament that says that the Lord of heaven inhabits, lives inside of, may I say, the praises of his people. When you're in pain, when you're worried, when you're scared, when you're angry, when you're feeling like God's far away, if you just start praising him, good place to do that is find some Psalms where that's done. You will find God feels like he is so much closer and more with you than ever. The Lord inhabits the praises of his people people he has transformed us we're a new creation we have a new capacity for speech but if we stay in the flesh we're going to hurt people with our words we're going to say things we're going to regret we're going to slander people gossip all of that uh which is totally wrong yeah we talked about that um so back to the text are you still awake say amen Amen. okay that's pretty good um So with the tongue, we praise our Lord and father. That's great. That's the highest calling. And with it, we curse human beings. That's the lowest thing you can do with your tongue, um, who have been made in God's likeness. Now we could talk all night about what does that mean? When we studied Genesis, maybe eight or 10 or 12 years ago, we did that's from Genesis one verses 26 and 27 where God says, let us make man in our own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Do you remember that? We're made in the image of God. There have been false teachers that say, God, Kenneth Hagin said this. Kenneth Copeland repeated it. God looks just like a man. Six foot two, 190 pounds, maybe a little more. We're made in his image. That's not what's meant. Doesn't mean that he looks like us or we look like him. We have the ability to love. We have the ability to create. Okay. And lower forms of life, and I don't get me wrong, I love dogs, cats, whatever, birds, they don't have a spirit. Okay. It's a different thing. They don't have the capacity to create that human beings do. But we have great capacity because of the fall in Garden of Eden for great evil as well. So we have to be careful how we use our tongues. He's going to expand on this in the next chapter, and we're going to see that it is basically thumbing your nose at God saying, get off the throne, I'll take your place. That may seem like, what? You'll see. Anyway, stay with me. So he's going to expound on that the whole thought of the inconsistency of it. Verse 10, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. It's very inconsistent. Verse 11, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? These are rhetorical questions. The answer, of course, is no, it's impossible. It's either a fresh water spring or a salt water spring. Springs are known by the taste of the water, the makeup of the water. So, if we've been made new creations, we ought to start acting and speaking like it. Um, Verse 12, my brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives? Obvious answer, no. Can a grapevine bear figs? No. Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. In other words, We are a new creation. We are made to produce fruit, and we are to be that spring of water that is spreading the gospel with what we do and say to the people around us, and praising our God vertically. Okay, so salt, it's inconsistent for a Christian to speak like the world. So now we get into verse 13, who has real wisdom, and what is it? The word for wise, if you've known anybody named Sophia, that means that word means uh, wisdom, Sophos in Greek, Sophia. Verse 13 Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So, we have a thing called, in our world, knowledge, right? I could go to college and get a PhD, right? Which stands for piled higher and deeper, but we won't go into that now. Anyway, sometimes you can get college degree after college degree and have a lot of knowledge and no know wisdom. Wisdom is not the same as facts, having information, having knowledge. Well, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the correct godly application of knowledge. Um, Let's talk about that. So, um, it's not just head knowledge. It's shown in our life. It's wisdom is the ability to learn and then act according to what you've learned. You have learned if you read the Bible, if you know the Christian gospel, you've learned about yourself that you can't save yourself, that you could not possibly stop sinning or ever go to heaven on your own or be good enough or earn salvation. You also know that God is totally holy and loved you so much he sent his son to die in your place. That relationship ought to be motivating and uh, motivating enough that love that was shown to us ought to make us want to please the one who's done so much for us by obeying what he says. Um, let's see. Like faith, wisdom is invisible. You can't see. You can see my hand. You can't. You can see my face. Unfortunately, you can't see my faith. You can't see wisdom. But both faith and wisdom are similar. Last chapter, remember, faith is shown by, evidenced by what we do. Good works. We already talked about that. Wisdom is the same way. Look at verse 13 again. Who's wise and understanding among you? The the commentators that I read said that he's writing, who's wise and understanding among you? Because there were a lot of teachers that were not qualified to be teachers who had said they had um, hidden knowledge. We have the hidden scoop, the real stuff. Yes, I know you've read the scriptures. That's great. I've got the inside scoop, the hidden knowledge. Um, And so they were attempting to put themselves above others. Notice that the word humility appears in verse 13. We'll get there in a second. That's why he's asking, who's wise and understanding among you? The proof that you understand or are understanding is that you show the wisdom that what you've understood has changed the way you live. Wisdom is the application of knowledge, applying it with divine power, God doing it in your life, to the point of reshaping your life, the way you treat God, the way you treat money, the way you treat your work, the way you treat other people in your family and your friends and strangers for that matter, and the way you give the talents, the time, and the treasure that you have Outward. It's all about attitudes and conduct that follow it. It's not what I know, it's how I live. That proves that we have wisdom. So it shows your spiritual condition. Let's keep reading in verse 13. Who's wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by their good life, by deeds done, listen, in the humility that comes from wisdom. Anyone that says I've got a lot of wisdom and I'm smarter than everybody else doesn't have wisdom, right? It's an interesting um, paradox, this whole humility thing, right? Ask for humility, God will give it to you. And it might not be pleasant, but it'll be for your good, right? The wisdom that, that comes from God automatically is humble. It's good deeds done in humility. To be humble is to be under someone else. You are voluntarily placing yourself under God and saying, your glory, not mine. We always give the example of someone that does something great in the church, works hard. The best way to do that is nobody really knows that you did it. It's for God's glory. You didn't do it for self-aggrandizement for this kind of thing. Deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. It's an automatic part of being a believer. A conceited believer is like a flaming snowflake. Impossible. Show me a conceited believer. I'll show you somebody that's not a believer at all yet. When we understand who and what God is, look at the stars on a clear night. And realize that the God you pray to, pray to is the guy that, God that not only made the earth and the weather around it and the trees and the birds and the ocean and the babies, he also made the vastness of all of space. If that doesn't make you feel humble, that alone, let alone what we read in scripture. So we have to have the, that gentleness and humility that comes from wisdom. Um, Let's see. We're going to take a quick detour to keep you awake. Go to Matthew chapter seven. James is a commentary in a sense on Matthew five, six, and seven, which is the sermon on the Mount. So go to Matthew 7, first book of the new Testament. We won't be here long. I want you to see a couple of scriptures uh, and how this relates to the sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven, pick it up in verse 24 and go to 26. Jesus talking, Matthew 7, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, that's the gospel, his teaching, and puts them into practice. Beyond head knowledge, this is somebody trusting it to the point that they're obeying it. Putting them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock double meaning because he is the rock Old Testament that Moses struck in the water came out it was a picture right So building a house on the rock what about that Matthew? What about that Jesus? Verse 25 the rains came down the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Are you in the midst of a storm in your life like that? You ever feel that way? The waves and the wind and the waters and the flood, it's overwhelming. If you're built on the rock, that's your foundation, the bottom bedrock of who and what you are and what you believe, you will be unaffected by all that storm going on around you. On the other hand, verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't, does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man who built his house on Sand, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Notice that the whole context here is wisdom. Go back a couple of verses. Um, he puts them into practice in verse 24. It's like a wise man. So how do you get this wisdom? First of all, you have to know what the Bible says. Number two, the wisdom is putting it into, Practice, believing it so much that you're acting on it, trusting it, and nothing else for your salvation. The other thing about wisdom we learned in chapter one of James. Do you remember? If any of you lacks wisdom, what's he supposed to do? Just lump it because that's the way you are. No, he can ask of God who will give that wisdom. It's an amazing promise. Have you asked God, please, Father, humbly I ask you, I need more wisdom if by the way if you think you don't need more wisdom guess what you're wrong (laughs) same for me i ask god all the time for wisdom we pray for that on a nightly basis my wife and i okay i want to go one more place and i can't think of where it is oh yeah um well we could go to matthew 25 we won't but do you remember the story of the wise and foolish virgins Some were wise, some were foolish. The wise ones filled their lamps with oil. They were ready. They were prepared. Oil, symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The other ones weren't wise. Long story, but it didn't turn out well for them. I want you to go now to 2 Timothy 3, 15. So go back to the latter part of the New Testament. 2 Timothy, it's in a little section where all the books start with T, Two Thessalonian books, Titus, and right in the middle, Second Timothy. We won't be here long. I want you to see Second Timothy, verse uh, chapter three, verse uh, fifteen. Um, but, but let's pick it up in fourteen. Second Timothy three fourteen. Uh, if you're not, if you can't find it, that's okay. We'll just read it. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and what you have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. Here comes the key, which are able to make you wise for salvation. How can I get more wisdom with regard to my salvation? The holy scriptures. What does that mean? It means read the Bible. Just the New Testament? No, the whole Bible. Read it. Read it again. Believe it. Don't read it. Listen like a novel why not because you just kind of speed through a novel and oh and that happened okay and during the page sometimes you got to stop and meditate on one sentence or one word and really let god speak to you it's the primary way it's not the only way but it's the primary way he speaks to us through his word um and how from infancy, I'm still in 315 of Second Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation on your own. No, through faith in Christ Jesus, right? Because if you don't have faith in Christ Jesus, and I've been at this point in my life, I read the Bible before I was a believer. Anybody else here ever do that? And it made absolutely no sense to me. It was like reading somebody else's mail and just confusing. I read Romans. I'm what? Some of it was understandable. A lot of it was right over my head. I read the same scriptures today. I am no smarter than I was then. I'm 67 years old. I'm probably way dumber than I was then. And I understand it way better. Why, Joe? Because the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside you, that's why that verse ends with "through faith in Jesus Christ." When you have faith in Jesus Christ, He gives you His Holy Spirit. That's God living inside of you, which illuminates the Scripture, is a louder conscience to show you don't do that sin-wise. It also, the Holy Spirit will speak and say, "You want to help her out, or him out, or them out, or that church out, or whatever it may be. Don't go in there." You ever had one of those? We have a funny feeling and. Every time I've trusted those feelings, I'm glad I did. Every time I ignored them, it wasn't good. So the key is the scriptures. The key is the humility. The key is the obedience. Um, So we're supposed to be doing, as we're reading this, a self-examination. How are we doing with our humility and our wisdom? And the deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Back to James. You remember James, verse 14, chapter 3. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Now, the idea of harboring something, if a boat floats by, you go, there goes the boat, right? But if you're harboring something, that boat of bitterness and envy and anger has come into your harbor and has put down an anchor. You're holding on to the things. That's why he's using the word harbor. If you harbor, listen, bitter envy and selfish ambition, those two are very close cousins. They go together. Bitter envy is he has that and I want it. She has that and I want it. One of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet, right? what's going on here keeping up with the joneses most media advertising that we see okay is based on this sort of thing look at this new car oh look at the people they're so good looking in the car i should be in that car i want that oh what a nice house i want that i want that wow the money they must have i want that it's all comes from the second phrase in that verse look back at it again bitter envy and what selfish ambition it's okay to be ambitious and if you work you ought to work as you're working as if you're working for the lord and do the best job that you can but selfish ambition is it's all about me and the funny thing about that is that you will never be satisfied because there's always somebody that is better looking or smarter or taller or better shape or has more money or a higher position or more PhDs than you have. It's very important that we don't compare ourselves with other people. There's always lesser and greater. We're going to talk about the pegboard system in a second, by the way. Um, so, if we're harboring those things, bitter envy and selfish ambition in our hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Boasting about it is one thing, right? All such—all boasting is out except boasting in the Lord. But the other thing it says there is denying the truth. In the Bible, usually the truth can mean just the truth, what it says. Here it means the truth of the gospel to be selfish and um, selfish ambition and be envious is to deny the gospel where it's not about you. It's about God. It's about loving others more than yourself about considering others more important than yourself. There's so many verses we could go to here. Um, I don't want to take too many uh, detours, but so what's being described here is somebody that's contentious. They're causing, they're causing fights, Um, with others. It's the opposite of graciousness and wisdom. Um, Graciousness and wisdom seeks the welfare of others. Um, Let's see. So this is an arrogant me first attitude. King James here has glory not and stop boasting. Don't live a lie. So this is another one of those tests we have to ask ourselves, Are we selfishly ambitious? Are we envious of others? Verse 15, such wisdom, NIV has it in quotes, and they're right. He doesn't mean there's wisdom in what I just read. This is a definition of worldly wisdom. If you know anything about Wall Street and about uh, Madison Avenue, which is the advertising center of the world in New York City, there are slogans that are the world's wisdom go for all the gusto you can. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If it feels good, do it. Not Christian. That's why this is that selfish ambition. Such wisdom, verse 15, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, or fleshly, demonic. Christians have A saying that they say, and it comes from a scripture uh, or two. This is one of them, but it also comes from 1 John 2. We may go there in a second. And that saying is this that the Christian has three enemies the world, the flesh, and the devil. What do you mean by the world? God made the world and he said everything was good. Listen, the world has its own. He doesn't mean the world per se, he means the unsaved godless world those slogans i just gave you right uh, are all selfish look out for number 1 you ever heard that one bible says no, look out for other, the needs of others look out for, ask god what he wants you to do his will be done even over your own will so there's the world the world philosophy which is whoever dies there's another one ever, this one is so stupid whoever dies with the most toys wins right? Have you ever seen that? I've seen it on bumper stickers. I'd like to say whoever dies with the most toys is still dead and can't take the toys with them, right? A hearse does not have a trailer to bring all your toys with you. It doesn't do any good. Okay, the world, then there's the flesh. That's the idea in the Bible of our own desires that are epithumia, lusts if you will epithumia is a greek word thumia is a lust i'm sorry is a desire and it's totally okay a god-given desire epithumia is means over desire here's what the difference between a desire and sin is watch god-given desire i have a desire to earn money for my family so i can provide food and shelter and clothing for them Thumia. It's a desire. God-given. Good for you. That's what a husband's supposed to do, a father. Epithumia. I want to be richer than everybody. I want what they have. I'm willing to lie to get it, cheat to get it, steal to get it. Do you see the difference? Greed is epithumia, an over-desire. Another God-given desire. I have a desire to be accepted and loved. Regular God-given desire. Everyone has that. We're not, no man is an island. We're not supposed to be living alone somewhere by ourselves. We're supposed to be intertwined in other people's lives, meeting people's needs, loving them, getting to know them, forgiving them, being gracious. I have a desire to be loved. That's a God-given desire. Good for you. Epithumia. I will sleep with anyone to get it. I will lie to make you like me. Epithumia, over-desire. I have a desire for food. Well, of course, you're alive. You need to eat meals. Epithemia, gluttony. I ate 14 Big Macs for lunch. Everything God gave you that's a desire, when taken to extremes, becomes an over-desire. That's that middle word. Um, lusts, variously translated, unspiritual the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay. The last one's the devil. That's pretty evil, easy to understand. I'll, I'll briefly say, we'll talk about the devil more in the next chapter. Satan is real. Okay. There's two extremes about Satan. Extreme number one. Oh, he's not real. It's just personification of evil. Move on. Okay. Jesus talks with Satan. Satan tempts Jesus. Satan's mentioned in the Bible. His fall is listed in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. I read them both today. In which, by the way, he's a glorified angel. Beautiful. And then he wants to be God. And says, I will ascend to the most high, like the most high. I will sit on the throne. I, 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 I. The devil's real. The two mistakes are one to dismiss him as it's just a kind of a myth, kind of a quaint little myth. The devil is not the guy with the pitchfork and the red suit. He appears as an angel of light. He's real. Why warn us, Jesus and God, against someone that's not real? He's real. He's got demons that help him out. That's one extreme. Just forget it. No big deal. The other extreme there's a devil behind every rock. You ever meet these people? You sneeze and they go, "I rebuke the demon of see- sneezing from you, Harold." Listen. We ought to be concentrating on know that he's real, concentrating on the good God Christ. Um, let's see. So that wisdom, godly wisdom, uh, I'm sorry, worldly wisdom verse 15 doesn't come from heaven. None of that stuff, that bitter envy, that selfish ambition, it's Earthly, worldly, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Unspiritual, fleshly, the flesh, and the devil. It's actually demonic. That ambitious Wall Street guy making seven figures a year that can't wait to make more because his friend makes eight figures a year, that's demonic. We know who his God is it's his bank account, right? It's his money, it's his paycheck. Um, is it time to take our break? It is. Let's take our two-minute break. I'm going to turn my screen off, let you stretch your aging bodies, and I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. Find your seats, if you will, and we're back in James chapter 3. Toward the end of the chapter, that wisdom doesn't come from heaven. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. Obviously, what he's saying is don't be like this. You're not submitting to God. You didn't get that from God. If your pastor or the guy you listen to on TV or radio (laughs) said, (laughs) Somebody says, not you, but somebody you know, says, if your pastor, the guy you listen to on on radio or TV says, God wants you to be rich and you can name it and claim it. And if you're not rich, it's your fault. You must have unconfessed sin. Poverty is a curse. If they say that, run to the TV and shut it off. Okay, that's what did we just say all that selfish ambition is and all that greed? It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. There's a lot of teachers that teach that name it and claim it stuff. They also teach, oh, if you have any sickness at all in your body, it's your fault. You must have unconfessed sin or you don't have as much faith as me. Forget it. Get away from those people, please. Uh, Whether their initials are J-O or (laughs) J-M or, let's see, Benny Hinn, did I say his name? Okay, sorry. Um, In any case, verse 16, for for where you have envy and selfish ambition, because he's talking about a church, this is occurring in a church, there's envy and selfish ambition, you find disorder and every evil practice. How many know 1 Corinthians 14, God is a God of order. You ever been to a church service where you go, boy, there's no order here. It's just crazy. Again, run for the exit. God is a God of order. Um, Envy and selfish ambition in a church means people are jockeying for position because they're jealous of somebody's authority or somebody's wages that they're getting or the money that they already have. Then you find disorder in every evil practice. But, verse 17, the wisdom that comes from heaven, he says, I've told you about the bad stuff, the rotten fruit. Here comes the good fruit. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. And then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So he says, I want you to understand the two kinds of wisdom, earthly wisdom, worldly wisdom, fleshly demonic wisdom, and then godly wisdom. So now we beat that dead horse of what's the world's wisdom like, and um, now we're looking at godly wisdom. Um, All that worldly wisdom, the reason there's disorder, there's anger, there's wars within churches, there's bitterness, lawsuits. First Corinthians is all about this stuff. There's lawsuits in that church. There's divorces. There's all kinds of devastation. Um, Okay, so the fruit of uh, God, the fruit of wisdom from God is full of love and a giving heart. Okay. Pure. First of all, see that word there in verse, whatever we were on 17. Pure means free from polluting influences. Okay. Gold that's pure isn't gold with some nickel and aluminum and dirt and asphalt and a little bit of, you know, hydro, you know, whatever else it's pure. So God's wisdom is free of defilements, not mixed with human opinions or philosophy. The word takes precedence, which is pure. Next, it's peaceable. It's always interested in making peace. Remember, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. You ever know about a conflict and go, boy, those two, they should work it out. You know what? Maybe God's telling you about it. So you'll get involved and go, John, I think you should talk to Jim. And Jim, are you willing to meet with me and talk with about your conflict? They're good friends, so they would never have that problem. But I'm just saying, be a peacemaker. Maker. Blessed are the peacemakers. May they succeed in the Ukraine and Russia. Anyway, um, gentle. Uh, next term. Let's see, I'm, I'm reading two different translations here. That's why this has the word um, considerate or gentle. This is, has the idea of being f- forbearance, even under persecution, that they are patient and um, not seeking their own way. They are even under being provoked. They're humbly patient, submitting even to dishonor. Um, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, "Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake." The next word there is the word, uh, at least in New NASB, submissive, willing to yield, not stubborn. I love this word. You ready? Teachable, having a teachable. Attitude that when somebody comes to you and says, You know, you don't get all defensive and go, Well, I already know what I'm doing here. Don't teachable, compliant. It's the opposite of this, would be somebody who's stubborn, disobedient, obstinate. Um, it's a military word, by the way, and uh, it's about military discipline. Um, a person that is submissive is eager to forgive. Because they realize, yes, you've wronged me, Chris, or somebody, and you've hurt me, but I'm so eager to forgive. Here's why. Because it's not that bad? No, it doesn't minimize the sin. But it's because I realize he did this thing to me, or four things to me, let's say, that were very bad. Okay, He spread gossip about me, or whatever it may be. How many things did I do to God that he forgave me for? If he can forgive me for the nine billion six hundred eighty-three million four hundred eleven sins, and that's probably close for me. If he forgave me for all of those, am I going to really hold him in, in, in hatred and bitterness over the four things? It's, it's, it's incongruous. It doesn't make sense. It's not consistent. So... Uh, eager to forgive. Uh, okay, the next one is let's see. Uh, hmm, hmm, uh, full of mercy. The opposite of someone that's full of mercy is the person that's vengeful. I want revenge. They deserve it. You know the difference, don't you, between grace and mercy? We read those two terms, they're close cousins or sisters. Okay, but there's a difference. Grace is good things that God gives you or anyone gives you. That's a gift that you didn't deserve. You couldn't earn it. They just gave you something. Okay, that's the gospel. We're saved by grace through faith. Didn't earn it, can't deserve it. Okay, so grace is good things given that we don't deserve, can't earn, and they weren't owed by God. God didn't owe you anything except punishment, but he gave you grace, which leads me to mercy, which is in a way the opposite, but they're close. Mercy is the withholding of punishment that you do deserve. And the judge in mercy says, You're guilty, and I should throw the book at you, but I'm going to let you off with a warning. That's mercy. God's wisdom is the kind of person that's not vengeful, not angry, full of mercy. Where do these Christians get these qualities? From the maker, right? From God, from the Holy Spirit. If you're reading all of this and you're thinking, "Oh man, I just keep getting assignments here from you. I have to be merciful and kind and peace-loving and I can't do it." Amen. Me either. But the Holy Spirit to the extent you to the extent you and I submit to him cuz he's asking you to do it. No, I'm stubbornly going to hate him forever. You got to let it go. Don't harbor all that stuff. Let the boat sail away until you can't see it in the horizon. Let's keep rolling. The wisdom from heaven is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit. You You mean like peaches, apples? No. Good fruit meaning we are supposed to be producing those good works, good fruit. The tree will be known by its fruit, Jesus says, same passage, Sermon on the Mount. So we are to be displaying God's wisdom can't be seen except in the result of it, the evidence of it. Just like we said last week, faith is like the wind. Do you remember that analogy? No one here has ever seen the wind. You've never seen the wind. If you think you've seen the wind, you're wrong. Wind is air that's moving. And since air is invisible, you can't see moving air but you can see the trees blowing, yes, and the grass blowing, and somebody's hair blowing back, yes, and your clothes, yes. That's the evidence of the wind. The evidence of your faith is the good fruits, the good works that we're doing, not to earn salvation, but in gratitude for the salvation we have. Same thing with God's wisdom. It shows in the way we live in our attitudes. Full of mercy and good fruit, impartial. Remember, he already gave a lengthy discussion about... A church where here comes a rich dude. Oh, you come up right here and sit right here in the front row and let me dust that chair off for you. And oh, could you move, please, Mr. Poor Man with no shoes and go go stand in the back. That's not being impartial, is it? That's judging prejudicially on the basis of appearance or of on money. That's worldly stuff God does not care about. Um, okay full of mercy and good fruit, impartial. Um, Let's see, I had more notes on that. Unwavering, undivided commitment, no shifting, single-mindedly devoted to God, without hypocrisy. Um, Sincere, one translation has. Um, This is the idea of being the real deal and not phony. Listen, we're all Christians. We all have the Holy Spirit, right? Um, and so we have this habit Christians do, how are you doing good with that fake smile and you're not doing good. You know what? We are commanded to bear one another's burdens. We ought to be able to say, I'm not doing that good to which the other person will say, Oh, look at the time I got to go. Right. (laughs) Instead of why, what's going on in your life. We ought to care enough about each other They'll know we're Christians by our love, Gospel of John. By this shall all men know that you're my uh, disciples if you love one another. you can't love someone another when they say, I'm not doing very well and you go, I gotta go. We're supposed to care. Be the real deal. Be um, impartial, be sincere. Because if you if we can't see through you, God can, right? Verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Talking in the context of a church where there's friction, conflict, division going on from these egotistical, envious, bitter preachers that are trying to come in and infiltrate into a church in this context. Peacemakers who sow in peace. Now he's using a farming Word, isn't he? Sowing means planting seeds. Peacemakers are always planting seeds of peace. When they do that, God waters them, brings the sunshine, S O N, and brings a harvest of righteousness, which is being more like God. If you're thinking, you're reading this and you're thinking, I can't do all this, as I said, you're right. Or you're saying, I'm on my way here, but I got a long way to go. Welcome to the club. It's a process, right? Lifelong process. Um, Let's see. We already talked about all of that. Uh, Jesus spends a whole chapter in Matthew 23 dealing with hypocrisy, dealing with the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious Jewish leaders who were a bunch of religious phonies. They're the ones Jesus comes down on the hardest. Not the prostitutes, not the thieves, not that any of that is right, not the drunks, that's not right, the thieves. He comes down the hardest on the religious hypocrites who are doing it for money and prestige. So, the soil of our seed that we're planting is that peace. We're being peacemakers. So, chapter summary our words are important, can't control our tongues, but the Holy Spirit can. Be careful what you say, don't rush into being a teacher. They're judged more harshly um, and have the that godly wisdom that shows itself in humility and graciousness, peace, kindness, all of that. All right. Chapter four, you still awake? Say amen. Yeah. Hey. Oh, all right. Okay. He's going to begin chapter four with a practical problem. He's led into it in the last chapter. You could see it. Conflict between believers because we're only human. We are don't all get along naturally. Some people are easy to love. Have you noticed that? Some people, not so much. So this chapter is all about, um, again, worldliness, selfish strife, and then, and then the conceit that leaves God, listen, out of plans for the future. Watch. Verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Who's the context? Believers. He's not talking about the world. He's talking about within a church, among you, believers. What causes fights and quarrels? Those two words are, one is, um, I'm going to get the word wrong. It's polemia, P-O-L-E-M-I-A, -I I believe it is. That's the kind of thing of a large group of people, like a war, and then the second word, uh, uh, machoi, uh, is the smaller one. One or two, three people arguing, okay? Either way, it's believers we know from among you. What causes them? Big fights, small fights. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? That's the word epithemia. Again, your lusts over desires. I want control. I want money. I want power. I want love to the point that I'll do anything to get it. Don't these fights come from you wanting overly things that you shouldn't. Notice that the desires battle, listen, within you. He's talking about an individual person. Do you know that as a Christian, on the one hand, you're saved. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Your future is absolutely glorious. There's just one problem. You're still living in the world in a fleshly body, and there's still a devil that can tempt you. So there's a constant battle for Christians, listen, in terms of, do I want to do that? I really shouldn't, but I think I'm going to do it. No, don't do it, Holy Spirit. You read the scripture that night. Oh, no, don't do it. There's a battle, isn't there? Everything we say, do, and think, we can control that ship. If we say, God, I don't want to even think about that, take that away from me. Because what we do is, well, I'm not going to do it, but I would like to imagine it for a while. Maybe like an hour, and then that's it. Listen, you've already stepped over the line. I hate him so much. I'm just going to imagine hitting him with a bat. I'm not going to do it. You've already done it. Okay, a small bat. You You know where I'm going with this. What causes the fights? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Verse two, this is interesting. You desire, but you do not have. So you murder, kill. You say, well, that's a hyperbole, isn't it? He's just exaggerating there. Is he? I'll show you in a second. You desire, but do not have. So you kill, you murder. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Who's he talking to again? Christians. He's saying that these people want things and don't ask God. They just want it on their own. This is a life that is battling the Holy Spirit inside of them, assuming these people are Christians. So there's battles going on in the church. These people want things, and they don't have them, so they kill. When's the first murder in the Bible? Fourth chapter of the whole Bible, fourth chapter of Genesis, Cain kills his brother Abel. Remember the story? Over a worship issue of all things, but over a jealousy issue as well, right? Almost instantly in the Bible, although those boys had to grow up, so it could have been decades later, Cain kills his brother Abel. We have to examine ourselves and realize something in the humility of Christianity, and it's this, and it's going to make you uncomfortable. There is no sin that you're not capable of under the right circumstances, That's why the murder word is in there to shock you and I. Oh, no, no, not me. The parallel passage is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And do you know what he says? He says, you have heard it said in the Old Testament, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, everyone that says to his brother, you fool, you idiot, you, the word literally is, I'm not kidding, airhead, honest. Anybody is guilty already of murder. You say, now there it is again. That's another exaggeration. It's not. Nobody just gets a gun or a knife or a bat and murders somebody. No, they do. No, they don't. It starts here first, right? And they imagine it and the anger builds. And then they eventually decide to do something about it. Jesus is saying, don't just look at the oak tree Look at the acorn. If the oak tree is murder, the acorn seed of murder is hatred, anger, envy. You're already on the way if you start entertaining those things. He's saying you got to let it go. You have to realize that none of us are incapable. All of us are capable of tremendous evil. Moses, one of the two most revered men in Israel, murdered an Egyptian. Remember that? and hid his body in the sand. David, oh, King David, a man after God's own heart, committed adultery and then tried to cover it up and then had the husband killed, basically. Sent him to the front lines to make sure he gets shot. It goes on and on. Um, he's saying, there's a path. I want you to see where it leads. I'm I'm not going to go all the way down it. Yes, you are. If you stay on it, yes, you will. The path of sin, the path of anger, the path of quarreling and all that leads to eventually killing, whether you do it in here or you do it with your hands or your feet. You can't get what you want. Did you notice that phrase in verse two? Is that what Christianity is? I'm going to come to Jesus so I can get what I want. Are you listening? Christianity is what is it that you want? I want to do that. Prayer is not coercing or manipulating God to get what we want, it is just the opposite. It is praying to God, His will back to Him. Central phrase in the Lord's Prayer Thy kingdom come, your will be done right there's no my will there but we tend to rush into god's presence don't we and pray i got a laundry list here god please do this give me this give me that give me this and i'll give you till thursday hello it's wednesday night are you coming through or not who are we okay just trying to make you feel as guilty as i possibly can murder is the fruit of unholy anger Was God angry with you for all that sin you committed? Yes. Did he forgive you on the basis of faith and the sacrifice of his son? Yes. Are you angry at what I did to you? Yes. Are you willing to let that go the way God did and forgive? We're supposed to be Christ-like. What did he do on the cross after getting beat up and whipped and whipped again and then nailed to a cross? go get them father no father forgive them they don't know what they're doing remember unbelievable love unbelievable forgiveness so we're capable of huge sin you don't have because you don't even ask god look at verse 3 when you do ask you don't receive i asked god for the 20 million he never gave it he didn't come through When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you can spend it on, spend what you get on your pleasures, right? There's prayer that has me, me, me in mind, right? What do you want, God? If you're like me, when you're in a tough place, in pain, in having anxiety, worried about a relationship, whatever it is, worried about work or money or whatever, um, we tend to pray as a last resort instead of a first resort, first of all. The second thing we do, it's a mistake I make, which is, I'm in pain, God, get me out of here. The right way to pray is, I'm in pain, you know I'm in pain. Whatever I'm supposed to learn through this humility, reliance on you. Maybe this pain's going to send me to a doctor where I'm going to meet another patient in the waiting room or the doctor. Maybe there's some purpose you have in this. May I learn whatever I'm supposed to learn through this, even if it takes me 30 years. You got me here for a reason. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He prayed and prayed and prayed, and God said, no, no, no. I like you just the way you are. Keeps you humble. All the more reason to be humble. So he doesn't give you a thorn in the flesh, right? All right. Um, um, There are many in God's kingdom who don't ask. Oh, God's too busy. I don't want to bother him with my little problems. He's your father. He loves you. He loves when you ask him. Does that mean he's going to say yes? No. He might say yes, might say no. And then the hardest one, you know what it is? Wait. Really? Yes. Wait is a faith builder waiting on God. I know it'll come through. I don't know when. That's faith. Very seldom do I pray and see the result in 20 minutes or less. Very seldom. Do you? Hardly ever. I can feel the peace sometimes after praying that, like, it's going to be all right, but I don't see the result. Ring, the phone rings. Oh, perfect. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you, God. That was only 11 minutes this time. Very rarely. Um, let's see. Proverbs one, the path of folly leads to death. The path of wisdom leads to life. Um yeah, we already asked that. Um, so verse, first John, now we'll go there uh at another time. Let's see that no uh prayer, that we just read about, we led to, led to verse three, selfish prayer. Um, Like we said, prayer is aligning our will with his own will. By the way, where it says spend it, you want to spend it on your, uh, where was that? Verse three, spend it on your pleasures. Same word for spend in the prodigal son, where he gets his money now and spends it on just riotous living. Remember that? Luke 15. So prayers can be self-centered. I want more time. I want to be healthy again. I get that. But how much better to say, I want whatever you want. However you can use me the best, do it. If you make me healthy, I'll use that energy for your kingdom. If I'm sick, I'll praise you anyway. And maybe I can be more of more use to you that way. So God might not desire the same things we desire. We have to trust him. This is a key thing. Listen, if you remember nothing else, remember this. Every single command of God in the Bible, which are both negative and positive, don't do this, thou shalt not do that. That's a command. Or the positive ones, do this, love your neighbor as yourself, pray, and all that stuff, read the scriptures. All of what God says he wants from us. Every single one of those things is better for you than whatever you think is better. Every single one. He's right 100% of the time, even when it doesn't seem like he is. Most of us have gone through a very tough time and we didn't enjoy it, but we can look back now and say, I'm stronger because of that. My faith is stronger. I learned from that. God knows what he's doing show me a wimpy christian i'll show you a christian that's gotten everything they want and their life is just cruised along and no problems show me a strong christian with big callous knees from praying i'll show you somebody's that's been through the tough stuff and has trusted god through it every time you do it your faith grows a little you trust him a little more faith is a muscle the more you use it the bigger it gets so to speak okay Now we're going to get to a tough verse. Um, I think it's the next one or the one after. So you don't, when you ask, you don't receive. You ask with wrong motives. Thy will be done. That's the best motive. That you can spend it, spend what you get on your pleasures. Verse four, you adulteresses. NIV has adulterous uh, people. It's adulteresses. What's an adulteress? It's a wife who's cheating on her husband. That's what it is right? Wait, he's calling us that? Listen, in the Old Testament, Israel, the nation of Israel was God's wife. You read about it again and again, and you read about it as you get through toward the end of the Old Testament, they weren't that good of a wife. They had idols, they had pagan practices, they disobeyed, they were cheating on God. In the New Testament, Guess who the bride of Christ is? You. The church is the bride of Christ. So if he's calling some people adulteresses, it means you're not being a very good spouse or spice. You're cheating on me, God says. Adulteresses. It's Old Testament language. You adulteresses, don't you know? Here it comes. That friendship with the world means enmity with God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You say, well, that's that's so abrupt and stark. Does it have to be that black and white? Absolutely. Can't you kind of stroll, straddle the fence with one foot in the world? And No, right? Tim Keller has a sermon where he says, Jesus says, crown me or kill me. There's nothing in between. Well, I don't want to kill him. I just don't want to worship him. Then you want to kill him. Well, I want to crown him, but not totally. I want to share the crown sometimes and then kill him. Crown me or kill me. There's nothing in between. Friendship with the world. What does that mean? Friendship with the world is adopting all those sayings we said before. Money is really important in the world. Good looks are important. Judging by who's powerful, that's the guy I want to kiss his rear end so I can get what I want from the powerful guy. Who's powerless? Uh, children, poor people, who cares about them? What can I get for myself from this person? The worldly values, the worldly wisdom is never, ever pleasing to God. If you've got a lot of that in your heart, you need to examine yourself and ask Am I walking with God? friendship with the world is, that means you're kind of distant from God? No. That you're a little bit estranged from God? No. Friendship with the world, these two verses say, is you're being an enemy of God. Believe me, that's the last person you want to be an enemy of, right? The most powerful being in the universe by a factor of a trillion trillion, don't be his enemy. You want to be his friend, Beyond friend, you are his son or daughter if you're saved, right? Friendship with the world means enmity with God. Anyone who chooses to be, and we can choose to be a friend of the world, becomes an enemy of God. Or, verse 5, do you think the scripture says without reason that he, there's that word, jealously, that's talking about God, jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us. How many know that the Bible again and again and again and again in the Old Testament says God is, ready, jealous? What? No. Yes. Again and again and again. In the notes, there's all the scriptures. God is a jealous God. Ezekiel 20, Ezekiel 34, Deuteronomy 32, uh, Exodus 20, Exodus 34, um, Zechariah 8. There's a million others what do you mean God's jealous? That's such an ugly emotion. Not when God has it. God so loves us for our own good when we stray and go off with another spouse, the world, sex, drugs, alcohol, prestige, power, education, whatever we think is it that we're placing in our lives as number one ahead of God, God's number four on my top 10. That's pretty good. No, it's not. Crown me or kill me. Number one, or I'm out of your whole hop top 1,000. God, the only place he fits in a life is number one. He doesn't fit in number two. Do you remember the rich man, rich, young ruler? This guy had it all. Rich, young, probably healthy, a ruler, powerful, Comes to Jesus, what must they do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments. The guy says, and he's wrong. I've kept them all my whole life. Yeah, right. Jesus, with his x-ray vision, looks into the guy's heart and says, ah, I see the problem. I see your God, and it's not the true God. So you know what he tells him? It's the only person he ever tells us to. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. In other words, until you get rid of your God, your love of the world, you're going to be an enemy of me. I appreciate you coming to me today, pal, but until you get rid of your God, he doesn't tell everybody else to get rid of everything they have. Tells this guy because he says to us, get rid of your other gods. Friendship with the world makes you an enemy of the Savior an enemy of God. So we're going to talk more about this verse next week that jealously longs for the spirit. There's two schools of thought on it. I don't have time to unpack it now. We'll do it next week. Same time, same bat channel. If you have a question or a prayer request, always you can email me. I'm happy to explain that i don't know the answer but i'll find out let's close with prayer and then we'll get out of here shall we thank you father for this time we could be in your word together i'm so encouraged this many people want to study your word and come to know you better and to receive your wisdom your salvation and submit to you and your holy spirit and your word god help us to control our speech our tongues What we say is so important. Help us to think before we say anything, to be led by your Spirit. Help our speech to be like medicine, healthy and helpful to people, loving, encouraging, prayerful with Scripture. Give us consistency, God. We want your wisdom, not the world's wisdom. We know what that's about. Help us to be consistent all week long. Help us not to be one person in church and at Bible study and somebody else at work or at home. Reveal to us if there's selfishness, bitterness, a grudge, anger, uh, worldliness, greed, and take it away, Father. We don't want to be those who cause divisions or fights. Help us to be the peacemakers, the humble ones who realize who they are in you, and that's our whole identity. Lastly, help us to not be friends of the world, God, to be in it, but not of it. Help us to be your followers, your children who obey. Bless these truths. May they change the way we live, God. Thank you for this time. Help us this week to remember to pray for wisdom, because you give it abundantly, chapter one says. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. Amen. Please make sure you say hello to someone in the room that you don't know. That's really important. Introduce yourself. Those of you on Zoom, you can't do that, but I'll see you next week. Thank you for being here. God bless you.